0: Broadcasting from the left coast in the heart of Babylon. This is the Campus Church Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Darrell. This is episode 22. Pluralism is. Welcome, everybody, to the Fight, Laugh, beast Network and the Campus Church Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Darrell. This is. Uh, Campus Preacher Podcast, a podcast designed to encourage and equip you in the work of evangelism. Um, as the title of the podcast may suggest, I am a campus preacher, which means I do open air preaching, if you have not happened to have listened to an episode yet. Uh, so usually Monday through Thursday, oftentimes also on Friday, somewhere on a college campus here in the United States, I am uh, preaching the gospel. It's now summertime, which means school's out, which means I'm running around the country Um I should be in New York during much of July. I hope to get into Indiana in a week or two. And then I'll also be in the southeast in Alabama and Georgia and hopefully Florida as well. And so if you are somewhere in those areas and you'd like to meet, um, please feel free to uh, reach out. This past weekend I was able to uh, get up to the Twin Cities and see some people there actually. I was able to spend some time with uh, Christ Church Twin Cities. So if you're in the uh, Minneapolis area, maybe even St. Paul, I don't know how far you want to go for uh, church, but there's a a good Reformed church on the west side of the city um, called Christ Church uh, Twin Cities. And so you can check it out. And it was kind of funny. On Friday, I was uh, flying out of Los Angeles, and I decided to go to Chick-fil-A before I hopped on the plane and um, pulling up to— Uh, Chick-fil-A in the greater Los Angeles area, Um, there's always a mile-long line for the drive-through. And I swear I went through that thing in about 90 seconds. Uh, I was doing 45 miles an hour the whole time, and the only reason I tapped my brakes was to hear, my pleasure! And so uh, I just wanted to hear them say that. So I tapped my brakes for that, and then I hopped on a plane and um, was able to spend a few days in Minnesota, and now I'm back here. And uh, one thing I was a little disappointed in, and being in Minnesota, I was expecting uh, a much thicker, um, like Sarah Paler, I remember when she was always going, yeah, John McCain I going rogue. I was expecting uh, more of that, and maybe uh, maybe the city's changing, and so the accent's not as thick, but I didn't get to hear as much as I, as I wanted to. Um, but it was good uh, church service. I enjoyed being up there, uh, but it's also good to be back in Southern California. So, uh, in this episode, what we uh, want to do is kind of finish up the idea of pluralism, which is uh, the, basically the dominant philosophy here in the United States. That uh, you know, there's a myriad of religious beliefs. You have Muslims, you have Hindus, you have Buddhists, you have Christians, you have Jews, you have Christians. Even within Christianity, you have Methodists and Baptists and Presbyterians, Reformed, Arminians, etc., etc. And so. Given all of this plurality of beliefs, um, how do we uh, not necessarily? How do we know that we're, uh, uh, that ours is true? That's part of the discussion. Uh, but intertwine is more the uh, two aspects of the objection that we often receive, which is some claim regarding our lack of humility. Um, maybe that we're arrogant, maybe that we're bigoted, uh, imperialistic, colonialistic, and um, and that, that's usually one of the main objections I hear on a college campus is, is a little bit that it's a, um, a, lacks, a lack of humility, like of all the people in the world, of all the billions of people in the world, uh, that you think you're right, that you found the one way to God. And um, so it, it can have the appearance, especially in our culture, of being an arrogant position. And so what we need to do is we're communicating with people who believe that the idea of exclusivism is in some way, shape or form, uh, arrogant, um, judgmental, harsh, imperialistic and all that sort of stuff. And so what we need to do is learn to communicate to people who fundamentally disagree with us. And, uh, I was even thinking about that a little bit, I spoke at a Sunday school, um, yesterday morning and uh in Minneapolis they're having their pride parade over the weekends and maybe all over the country they're having their pride parades um but they're having theirs in uh, Minneapolis that weekend and one of the things we have to realize as our culture goes the way of the dodo bird is that you know basically speaking out against homosexuality in um, our culture's context is is like speaking out against an African-American. So it's almost like almost like a new racism. Uh, we're not quite there just yet, but that's definitely the trajectory of our culture, uh, as even as certain bills seek to be passed where, you know, quote-unquote conversion therapy is outlawed and banned. They may even have done that in California. I know they were trying to. I'm not sure if it was ultimately uh, passed or not. But then uh, in the most recent uh, Equality Act uh that they were voting on a month ago, uh, they were also trying to outlaw conversion therapy. So the implications of all that for uh, the culture of just setting the tempo that people who speak about on it are actually doing something illegal uh, depending on how they're going to define conversion therapy and all that sort of jazz. So anyway, point being is we are in a cultural context that is pluralistic and is not going to like us. And in many ways, it's like kind of going back to the uh, Roman Empire. So the early church... Uh, they were not rejected by the culture because they believed that a Jew died for their sins. Uh, that may have been part of the stumbling block with the Jews that they wrestled with. But in the context of the Roman Empire, they were being rejected because they would not bow a knee to Caesar. And they've pledged their allegiance to Jesus. They would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, uh, not Caesar. Uh, therefore, that comes the persecution. And so as we start to become more pluralistic, we're going to look a little bit more like the Roman Empire. And people aren't going to care that you're spiritual, that Jesus lives in your heart, that, uh, you know, that you believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead and stuff like that. What they are going to care about is when you believe that that has implications for every single individual in this country. Um, So when Jesus gives us the Great Commission, uh, all authority under heaven and earth is mine, therefore go and make disciples of all nations— Um, teach them to observe all things I've commanded you. And, you know, Acts chapter 17, the times of ignorance, God uh, will no longer overlook, and he commands all men everywhere to repent. And so it's the minute you get to that discussion that these people must repent and owe their allegiance to Jesus um, that you're going to bump into um, a myriad of objections. And that's, you know, part of equipping you to do evangelism is hopefully giving you some rhetoric and apologetic in order to deal with that. Um, But one of the main things you're going to be addressed with is that your position is arrogant, that it lacks humility, Uh, so there's almost like a moral objection to you, that you're somehow immoral in setting forth Christianity as being true, and then they're also going to want to hit at the idea that you are kind of intellectually proud and arrogant and haughty, and who are you to tell everybody else that they're wrong? And so in this episode, uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time addressing those issues. And in order to get into those issues, uh, I think a helpful little parable, kind of a famous little parable, is the elephant and the blind men, or the blind men and the elephant, and so I'm going to read that parable and then from reading that parable, we'll be able to uh, hopefully develop the idea, uh, both intellectually and morally, um, how we go about, uh, again, oftentimes, I'm, I'm kind of repeat myself week in, week out, from the standpoint of half of what we want to do rhetorically. Because I think we have an apologetic that gives answers to things. Um, and we often make the distinction between what is proof and what is persuasion. And I think more often than not, uh, we have to work not, maybe we need to work on our apologetic, but often much more of the persuasive element to people who disagree with us. And I feel like oftentimes in apologetics, sometimes we can have a tendency to punt on the idea of being persuasive with somebody in the hopes of merely offering up a proof and then, you know, kind of rebuking them and calling them to repentance uh, rather than sitting there and seeking to persuade them. And so one of the things I want to do week in, week out is show how we get the ball, kind of like clear the room, so to speak. So here's all their objections to us. Here's how they view us. Here's how they're thinking about us. And half of what we want to do is get the ball to midfield, so to speak, or clear the room so that they can understand uh, the nature of their objections to us are more often than not applicable to themselves. And so, again, I don't think this is exactly what G's had in mind, but in one of the early episodes um, – you know, judge not, uh, lest ye be judged. With the judgment, uh, with the measurement you use, we measure down and press down upon you. So one of the things we want to do, if you can keep that verse in your head, one of the things you're constantly looking to do is what is the measurement they're using against you? And then what you want to do is listen for that measurement, turn around and press it down upon them and see if they can live by it. And so we're going to see in the story of the parable of the blind man and the elephant and the idea of pluralism, uh, that they cannot live by their own standard. And so that's, uh, where the apologetics are going to go in that. So here's the uh, parable. A group of blind men heard that a strange animal called an elephant had been brought to the town, but none of them were aware of its shape and form. Out of curiosity, they said, We must inspect it and know it by touch, of which we are capable. So they sought, sought it out, and when they found it, they groped about it. In the case of the first person, whose hand landed on the trunk, he said... This being is like a thick snake. For another one whose hand had reached its ear, it said, it seemed like a fan. As for another person whose hand was on its leg, said, the elephant is a pillar like a tree trunk. The blind man who placed his hand upon the side of the elephant said, it is a wall. Another who felt its tail described it as a rope. The last felt its tusk, stating the elephant is that which is hard, smooth, and like a spear. So that's the basic parable, and you can see the myriad of directions which it goes. And uh, you know, you're kind of looking at the story, and you can see why each individual believes the way it believes. They're blind, and they are having limited access uh, to actually what is going on with the elephant. And I would say that's the kind of the most common. Uh, parable that many people adopt and they may not even know that they're saying it you, you, we might find more simplistic versions of oh you know they're you're hikers on a mountain and they don't see the whole mountain but they're all going to the top and so you know they're all going to get there anyway and you know one takes one trail another takes another trail but they're all going to get to the top of the mountain uh, but the point in all of them is to suggest that be it islam be it Christianity. Hinduism, Buddhism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, they all have little pieces of truth, but they don't have the whole picture. So the last thing they need to do, and the the parable goes on, depending on the context of, uh, you know, these blind men duking it out and fighting over um, what they know of the elephant, saying, "Nope, the other person's wrong," and all that sort of stuff. And so the the point being, you know, have some humility in the things that you hold, um, and not kill people or beat people up and fight people who hold to other truths just because their perspective is different. And it sounds good, and it's, you know, kind of, uh, you know, seems like a way to have some kind of social peace and everything else. Um, But the question, uh, it doesn't really get at the intellectual issue of whether or not um, one whether or not Christianity is true. And I think as we think about it a little bit more, we're going to see that it also doesn't really strike at the issue of whether or not uh, the Christian or the Hindu or the Buddhist or the Muslim is actually being arrogant to hold that their beliefs are exclusively true. And I I think the the best way to kind of sum this up is a gentleman by the name of Leslie Newbegin, who wrote a book called The Gospel in a Pluralist Society, and the book was written 30 years ago. And so the reality of it is 30 years ago, uh, we were a pluralist society and I believe Leslie Newbegin um, may have been a missionary to India for a period of his life and so I'm sure that's also influenced uh, his outlook. But he uh, I think addresses the the parable uh, pretty cogently and if you grasp this, then you're gonna kind of be oriented in a way to respond to the those those who are lamenting your evangelical exclusivism as being either intellectually arrogant or morally arrogant. And here's what Newbegin says. He says, In the famous story, The Blind Men and the Elephant, the real point of the story is constantly overlooked. The story is told from the point of view of the king and his courtiers, who are not blind, but can see the blind men are unable to grasp the full reality of the elephant, are only able to get a hold of it, uh, get a hold of part of it. So think about that for a second. The part of the claim is that, you know, you Buddhists, you. Christians, you Muslims, uh, Christians, etc., 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 are merely telling the story from your perspective. Yet the reality of it is they're assuming, like the king in the parable, that they have a transcendental perspective, that they're able to see what all of the blind men are unable to see, and they have a picture of the whole elephant. And so while they're talking about points of view, you want to point out, well, you also have a point of view at which you're describing what we're doing. And you can ask, what gives you the transcendental point of view, that you understand that we're really the blind men only touching part of it, but you have a picture of the whole thing. And so intellectually, you get a pushback right there at the very angle that they're going to claim that you, you're you just operating from a certain uh, viewpoint, be it cultural, be it religious, whatever it is, you want to apply that viewpoint back to them. And so New Begin continues, the story is constantly told in order to neutralize the affirmations of the great religions, to suggest that they... Uh, learn humility, and recognize that none of them can have more than one aspect of the truth. But of course, the real point of the story is exactly the opposite. If the king were also blind, there would be no story. The story is told by the king and is the immensely arrogant claim of the one who sees the full truth, which all the world's religions are only groping after, and embodies the claim to know the full reality which relativizes all the claims of the religions. So if we follow that clearly... Uh, we realize that the person arguing that here we are, exclusivists, and being evangelical exclusivists, we're intellectually arrogant, uh, we're morally haughty as well, um, and we need to learn some humility because you have a bunch of other religions out there, you have a bunch of other philosophies out there. And they all hold them sincerely, and they all believe that they're equally true, or not necessarily equally true, but they uh, at least hold them with the equal sincerity that we hold our beliefs. And it's very arrogant for us to say that they're wrong. Um, But the reality of it is the the pluralist is actually the one who's being extremely arrogant because what he's actually claiming is he's not – A blind man groping the elephant. He's actually transcendent. He is able to see the whole elephant. He's able to see all of reality and tell us what we're actually doing, and that we should actually give up our beliefs, repent of our exclusivism, and adopt a more pluralist outlook. And so it actually becomes exclusivistic. And so that's why I titled this uh, podcast uh, Pluralism is Exclusivism, because what you realize, if you listen to the argument's of the pluralist, and you accept the arguments of the pluralist, uh, they become equally exclusivistic because what they really want to do is neutralize us, and they want to uh, basically, in a sense, eradicate evangelical uh, Christianity. And we, we can that's not to be like, you know, in, in a sense of merely oppressing us. They want to eradicate all religions that make themselves distinct, and they're saying, nope, Here's here's the way to, to really go – here's the way really forward, and it's pluralism. So they're equally exclusivistic. They believe that they have the truth um, both intellectually, and they also – I think it can also become equally arrogant because how condescending kind of you have to be to look at all well, these people who sincerely hold their beliefs as they want to say to us um, – and then turn around and say, they're all actually, you're all actually really wrong. And uh, you can just ask the pluralist: well, do you sincerely hold those beliefs and are you sincerely wrong or are you, are you actually right? And so what you begin to realize as you delve into the analogies they give, even if you want to, even if they give the analogy of us all going up a mountain and, you know, we're all taking our own trails, uh, they're assuming that they have a bird's eye view or a transcendental view, a God's uh, view of the whole mountain and where each one is headed and how they all get to the top safely and all that sort of stuff. And so we need to learn to uh, push back quite explicitly at those uh, places. And I just want to, I think it was two weeks ago. I don't think it was last week. I think it was two weeks ago. Um, I mentioned the debate I had with Dr. Avalos, which was seven years ago. And Dr. Avalos, I think, does a, a pretty good job, again, laying out the logic. It's wordy. It's a little convoluted. Um, but I think he lays out well um, oftentimes why secular man is willing to go the pluralist route, and it has, uh, kind of going back to John Locke, it has political and cultural reasons behind it. So I'm going to read again from Dr. Avalos so you can kind of get this in your head. Dr. Avalos says this, all worldviews, even those that claim pluralism, are hegemonic, and hegemony is just the idea of having power over other people and philosophies over other people are hegemonic because they inevitably seek power over those that have a non-pluralistic worldview. And so when the—basically, kind of like what we're getting at here, when the uh, atheist or agnostic wants to raise objections to Christianity the, that we're being you know, too exclusivistic, they're inevitably—they um, themselves are also— uh, you know, being exclusivistic over our philosophies. And so they can equally be as imperialistic. They can equally be as, in Dr. Avalos' term, hegemonic over other philosophies. Um, but I would just say practically that's where they want to get, and that's why they want to neutralize all the religions and just kind of make it a private thing that takes place in our heart and actually not be public. And so Dr. Avalos goes on to say, a pluralistic religious hegemony is a politically expedient means to persuade people to adopt. A secular humanist hegemony, which I believe holds the best prospect for a better global society. Phrase more frankly, religious pluralism is good so long as it does not interfere with secular humanism's goals. So, as you're engaging your co-workers and uh, you know family members and stuff like that, you need to be able to you need to be willing to point out that there's secular humanism is as exclusivistic and is open to the objection of arrogance, is open to the objection of hegemony and imperialism, colonialism, and all that sort of stuff. And and so all worldviews, we want to basically point out, are exclusivistic. All worldviews can be arrogant. And as Christians, what we want to lay out that, and even we want to, not even this layout intellectually, but carry out in our lives, we want to be able to give answers with Jonas and respect. Um, that the nature of Christianity, that is, I would say, in a sense, imperialistic, depending on how we want to use these terms, uh, we gain cultural power by washing feet. Uh, Jesus, think of Philippians chapter two, have this mind in you, which is the same as in Christ Jesus, who though being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something we grasp, but humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Um, and so, God became a man and washed people's feet. As Christian We, in a similar fashion, we do Want to wash our neighbor's feet and serve Our neighbor. So uh, We can agree that, you know, maybe Imperialism, if you want to use that word uh, We're an imperialistic religion. We want the whole world To come into obedience to Jesus Christ But how do we go about doing that? By laying down our lives for our enemies And so those are the things that we need to constantly Reiterate and lay out Over and over and over again And so, um, yeah so when you consider uh, our apologetic in response to the idea that we are arrogant because we are exclusivistic in our beliefs or both intellectually and morally, what we want to point out is so is the uh, secular humanist or the pl- uh, pluralist view is equally open to the charge of intellectual arrogance as well as moral arrogance or um, you know some sort of moral stiff-neckedness in some, some way, shape, or form. They're equally open to those charges. Now, instead of just playing, you know, the, the charging game against one another, that you're doing this and you're doing this. Uh, now we need to ask the question, what's true? And if we don't know the truth, uh, they can't say that we're like the blind men feeling around the elephant. But if they do know the truth, then they're selling at the place of being exclusivistic. So what is it that they want to do? Not know the truth and be these pluralists um, and you know, not have any objection to these alleged blind men Or do they want to claim to know the truth wherein they become exclusivistic? And so ultimately what we realize is that pluralism is exclusivism. So that's episode 22 of the Campus Preacher podcast. If you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, feel free to contact me at keith at campuspreacher.com or on the Twitter, uh, Campus Evangel, at Campus Evangel. Uh, May the Lord bless you, keep you, talk to you next week. Some of it fell upon stony grounds never bring forth fruit for they would not believe that when the sower was gone the reaper would be coming around hurry take what you got do with it what you can because the good God in heaven needs a sower